0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of titles to choose from, ...in a tremendous variety of literary genres... ...and you can play them on just about any digital listening device that you have in your possession... ...whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program... ...Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. You can go get a book by the Dalai Lama or a book by Pema Chodron. You can try to find yourself. You can try to achieve inner peace... Or perhaps you can get a book by Philip Roth or Don DeLillo or Tony Morrison or somebody like that. Just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program a little bit. I get a few nickels. That is appreciated. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God.
0: You are not alone. You have found other people.
1: You and
2: I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me and my brain. This is you and your brain. Thank you for being here. It's good to be with you as always. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, You know that, or you probably know that. I think you know that. Uh, Do you know that? So uh, anyway, I hope you're doing well. As the holidays bear down, as they close in, as they envelop us, I hope it's not too terrible out there. I know uh, that this time of year can be heavy and stressful, and I know that it's been particularly heavy lately uh, here in the United States, at least. It's been exceedingly heavy and difficult with this tragedy in uh, Newtown, Connecticut. It feels like the worst and most heartbreaking life, uh, heartbreaking crime of my life, and probably all of our lives. It's just it feels like the worst thing ever, especially now that I have a young child. And, uh, it's hard to even know what to say about it because it seems like everything's been said or everybody out there's chattering about it and not knowing what really to say. Um, what do I say? You know, it's like, I look around and I look at what we have become (laughs) and what we are as as a species and, and what, and the shape that we're in and the shape that the world is in. And it's hard for me not to think to myself, I don't like us very much. And I'm one of us. Do <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That's what I keep feeling. Like, oh my God, what are we? What the fuck are we? And I'm one of us. So, that's how I feel, truly, emotionally. I also feel spent and... uh dejected and depressed and all the things that I think everybody's been going through and also frightened and pissed off. It's just a whirlwind of, uh, of very you know, various emotions. And you, you know, you couple that with the fact that it's the holidays and, you know, it's just almost too much to bear. So what do you do? You know, you, you've signed petitions on Facebook to ban 50 shot cartridges. And, you know, I'm not a gun person, but I feel fairly tolerant you know, in a free society, if you want to have a pistol or a, you want to go hunting, okay. You know, I'm tolerant. It's not what I would do. I don't understand the fetish with uh, guns and weaponry. But if that's your thing, great. But, um, you know, th- these semi-automatic weapons and this war machinery available at Walmart seems insane to me. So I find myself looking at it, you know at everything not just not just that specifically but just everything the whole state the planet you know the pollution just all of it and i say to myself my god i don't like us very much and i'm one of us so what am i supposed to do you know it's kind of a circular argument i guess you start to think like that and then you ultimately come to the point where you're just like well the only thing i can do is control myself and my own behavior and I just need to try to be a better person and hope that that makes some sort of difference. And, you know, that means uh, that I have to like myself more (laughs) in spite of the fact that I don't like myself very much and I don't like us as a species very much and I need to also like other people more in spite of all that. I think it's just compassion. Is that is that what the great uh, religious thinkers arrived at? That might be it. Like Jesus might have actually hated everybody <laughs> and just been disgusted with the whole species. But then eventually you realize that you are a member of that species and the only way to proceed is with compassion because we are such a mess. So I don't know what to tell you other than uh, what I'm going to do. And I'm just, I'm going to try to be better day in and day out one moment at a time, just be nicer, more patient, less certain of my own opinions, less inclined to speak or act in anger. Uh, And I think that however the process unfolds, if we're going to make our way forward and if uh, we're going to survive as a species, I think it should probably involve the reading of a lot of good books by a lot of really wise people. How does that sound? Does that sound good? Uh, speaking of which, my guest today is Diana Wagman. She is the author of four novels and a past recipient of the Penn West Award for Fiction. She is also an accomplished screenwriter. Her latest novel, The Care and Feeding of Exotic Pets, is now available from Ig Publishing. And I should add that this novel is the December selection for the TNB Book Club. That is the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The com is my online culture magazine and literary community and for only $9.99 a month you can join the book club every 30 days you get a brand new title delivered to your door that is uh, less than the cost of a movie ticket it's less than the cost of a book uh, for goodness sake and better yet all of the book club authors appear on this program so you can read the book then hear my conversation or you can hear my conversation and then read the book however you like it so if you want to sign up, just go to the Nervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. You can pay with PayPal. You can pay with any major credit card. It is safe. It's easy.
0: And so on. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories.
1: So having said all of that, let's get going with the show. This right here is my conversation with Diana Wagman, the author of The Care and Feeding of Exotic
0: Pets.
2: All the animals in our lives, be they children or spouses or people we meet up every day. I mean, there's an animalistic side to all of us, I think, that's really interesting to me, where we get down to our most base levels and um react to things in an animal kind of way um and then people with their animals like i always like someone better when they have an animal of some kind
1: i find that if someone doesn't like dogs i have a hard time with them as a human being exactly like when someone's like oh i hate dogs i'm like i don't know if we can be friends i don't know if we can be (laughs) friends
2: And you have such a great dog. You know, anybody would like that dog, you would think. I would hope. But there are people that, you know, just react that way. And they wouldn't have a cat or they wouldn't have a mouse or a guinea pig or anything. So I like people who have animals and I like people who are animals in some way. I'm very fascinated by that.
1: Okay. So let me ask you, this is... A semi-related question, and it's uh, it's rooted in my own personal experience. But like religiously, or in terms of like your grand view of life, Mm -hmm. uh, are you a religious person? No. Okay, neither am I. And I find that I I share that same thing where I like I I tend to look at all of us as animals, Mm -hmm. which we are, you know. And I think that maybe the tendency to view human beings in an animalistic way, as opposed to being like elevated above other creatures. Might have some. I don't. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. I feel like there's a line there.
2: There definitely is. In the New York Times Sunday Magazine last week, I think, two weeks ago, there was a whole article about jellyfish and why they can live sort of forever and what we can learn about them. And one of the letters in this past week was someone saying, you know, but jellyfish have no soul. Jellyfish have nothing. They can't be immortal because they don't really exist. And we, as humans, are the only things that could be immortal, and we're immortal in the way we pass our stuff on to our children. And, and I thought, boy, that's such an interesting distinction, that's such an interesting line that person makes about what makes us not animals, is that we have some soul, he thinks. Don't dogs have some essence of life like that? You know, don't? aren't, isn't it in trees and rocks? I mean, I sort of believe that it's everywhere that right. that deepest essence of life, but I'm not religious. And this person obviously was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just think it's kind of arrogant and, and that might be too harsh, but it seems a little arrogant to think that human beings, um, are somehow the, uh, you know, uh, special, special. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are, there are certain things animalistically that distinguish us. I think Definitely. like our, our, Uh, self-consciousness, our awareness that we're alive, our awareness that we are mortal, all that kind of stuff that's obvious. But um, I don't think that that alone distinguishes us in a way that should make us feel like we're better.
2: Right. And Ken Kesey wrote this wonderful essay about a cow dying on his farm. This is years after the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Um, He lived on a farm in Oregon, I think, and a cow died and the other cows circled around and mood or whatever you know it's
1: yeah, yeah the elephants do that i get very moved by yeah. that you know whenever you see like the elephants mourning, mourning and, oh my god and horses
2: who come back together after years apart <laughs> yeah. like, i watch all that stuff on youtube oh, yeah yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> i was just gonna say those viral videos of like the chimpanzee who like had been separated from his human friends for right. years and then he sign language. you know
2: yeah i love you yeah right <laughs>
1: yeah. like good to see you again and you know all that kind of stuff but um it's just interesting. I feel like we share the world with these animals and I feel like there's a lot to be learned from them. Right. But at the same time, you know, I, one of my favorite uh, films of recent times was, um, Oh God. Grizzly man. Mm,
0: mm-hmm. The Werner
1: Herzog mm-hmm. film, because I felt like that was just such, You can't replicate that footage. You know what I'm saying? Like that was just such magical footage and and so personal and such a strange character, you know, at the center of it. But also such an interesting examination of man in relationship to nature. And it can easily be taken too far where we personalize these wild animals or we attribute to them characteristics that they don't actually have. And we make them more benign than they actually are in we, relationship uh, to us.
2: anthropomorphize them right? You know, make them human. And like that woman who slept with the, I don't know what she slept with, a chimpanzee maybe, and it ripped off her face. Oh, or my something. God, yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's an animal. It's yeah. still a wild animal.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, like the chimpanzee thing, too. Um, I used to, I think earlier in my life, I, you know, because you always see the baby chimps in diapers mm-hmm. in the commercials, mm-hmm. and there's a really there's a sweetness to them. Mm-hmm. But then you read these stories. I mean, you do not want to mess with the chimpanzee. An
2: adult chimp, and they're so strong and yeah, yeah. like like
1: like superhumanly strong. Yeah. you know, and vicious. Um, and then you say, you know, there's also been documentaries that I've seen of these chimpanzees, like warring wild chimpanzees warring with other
0: oh.
1: groups of chimpanzees. Like they actually
0: yeah conduct. Combat, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm
1: like, okay, I see how this works. But um, let's talk about the research that you did mm. prepping for this novel because you did do you did I have did to a do ton some of
2: research okay. on the iguana. And um, I met this wonderful woman, Sabine Phillips, from Iguana Rescue. Um, because iguanas are very small when they're born. Great green iguanas. They're vegetarian. They're very small. And for people who love reptiles, they seem very manageable. But they grow quite large. And people just let them go in the park or whatever. And they can't really live in Los Angeles. It does get too cold for them. Plus, they shouldn't be just wandering around <laughs> in Los Angeles. Are they
1: dangerous at all?
2: They're not. Well, you know, if they're provoked, they'll defend themselves. How? But they'll bite. Yeah. Um, as he does in the book. They'll scratch. Yeah. Um. They're not very fast, so they stand and fight as opposed to run. Um, But basically, they don't want to be bothered. You know, they're reptiles. They want to sit in the sun and be slow. Right. And um, (laughs) eat vegetables. Sounds Um, like me. Yeah, exactly. Me too. So I spent a lot of time with her, and there were, she had four iguanas in a teeny tiny apartment about the size of this studio and they just wandered around wherever they wanted to go and they were truly her pets i couldn't really tell them apart you know i mean i sort of could um but she talked to them and had names for them and they were companions to her in a way that i don't think of a reptile i am a dog person and a cat person and a you know, sort of warm blooded animal person, but they're foreign and prehistoric and something sort of terrifying about them. Dragon like Yeah. Um, Especially when they're so big (laughs) and um, they, how big
1: are we talking? Give us some dimensions here.
2: Well, she had one, none of them were as big as the one in the book. The one in the book is seven feet and they do get that big, but very rarely. Right. These were the longest one I think was about four and a half feet.
1: Still, still a large, still a large lizard,
2: but a large lizard in a tiny apartment. Okay. And so
1: when you're talking to her about this, did did you get the sense that, uh, she had a relationship with these lizards that would be comparable to the relationship you or I might have with a dog?
2: Yes. So she
1: got that kind of reciprocity from these lizards. She
2: did. Um, she told me this crazy story. You're not allowed to take, I didn't realize this, animals on a public bus, a city bus, And sometimes they need to go to the vet or she needs to take them places or she goes to pick them up and she didn't have a car. So she would wrap them around her body under her clothing. Oh my god. Like against her skin (laughs) and travel with them and I'd be hard pressed to do that with a dog. Yeah. Maybe a little puppy.
1: Sorry, Walter. (laughs) We'll get your meds next year.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: So it was wild.
1: That's wild. That's and that's a That's a very unusual level. Yes. Of human pet interaction.
2: But I found I went to the Anaheim, the big Anaheim reptile show, the Reptile Expo, right, um, and talked to a lot of reptile enthusiasts, and they're an interesting breed.
1: Okay, so break them down because I was going to ask you about this because this fascinates me. Like there, I can't. I mean, I'm a huge animal lover. I love having pets, but obviously now, especially now that I have a kid, it becomes less psychologically and temporally manageable. Right. You know, like, how do I find time to take care of all these creatures? Right. Especially once you have a human in your charge. So what, like, even so, if I had all the time in the world, I can't imagine being like, you know what, I'm going to get a python.
2: All right. That I have to feed
1: dead mice to. Uh, Or live. Or live mice. Yeah. Yeah. That whole process would just, you know.
2: And at the reptile show, there are whole walls of things to feed your reptiles, oh. you know, that's the whole part of it.
1: So break, but like, tell me about the humans.
2: Well, I don't want to stereotype, but.
1: Oh, please do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's a preponderance of tattoos. Yeah. And sort of heavy jewelry kind of wearing You know, they look like motorcycle people to me by, in general. Right. Every once in a while you get the grandmother who for some reason (laughs) is really into these snakes. Right. But most of them are, there's a macho-ness, even among the women, to having these large, cold-blooded animals. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. So we're on a track here that this has actually been (laughs) nagging at me for a long time. Because it makes sense to me. And I think that that's generally correct. There's always going to be exceptions or like outliers or whatever. But, um, when I think of those kinds of people, I also think of like people who are drawn to, uh, bull mastiffs and Mm -hmm. pit bulls. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to demonize certain breeds of dogs because I think that that happens unfairly. But like you just, like the the dogs that are quote unquote more dangerous, the pets that are more quote unquote more dangerous. There's a certain personality type, and then they have the same as, this aesthetic of like right. the tattoos and the all black and the motorcycle boots, and they're riding a motorcycle, which is more dangerous. Right? Like, what is happening psychologically? Do you think?
2: I guess it's kind of a Type T personality. You know, it's some sort of thrill seeker. If you have a dog that could kill somebody,
1: including you, <laughs> including you,
2: right? Given the wrong food or something. Um, you're saying, "I can live this way, I'm dangerous I'm other right um and the guys that walk around and women that walk around with these snakes <laughs> around their necks all over the the expo, you know they have these and they're pythons well, it's been fed well, this python could just as easily squeeze you you know right there's a there's a walking on the edge kind of. Lifestyle.
1: Okay, so here's a thought, or here's a question. It would seem that people who in, who have these kinds of pets or who engage in whatever behaviors who fall into this category, mm-hmm. this broad category, would have less fear than, say, I, you know, you or right. I, because I'm like, I don't want,
2: uh, yeah, you I know. don't want to live with
1: something that scares me. Right, but I wonder. I don't know. Do they have less fear or do they have more somehow? Do you know what I'm
2: saying? Right. Are they searching for it so that the regular fear that they have that they won't succeed or they won't get a job or they won't find a lover or they won't whatever? Right. So that's pushed on the back burner because they got something they got to be afraid of <laughs> right. every single I've got day. A, I've
1: got a lethal killer animal <laughs> at my feet 24-7.
2: Yeah. Well, you think about Siegfried and Roy, yeah. Roy. you know, you,
1: That's what's your
2: pet? Oh, <laughs> five Bengal tigers, you know?
1: Yeah. I just saw The Life of Pi uh, last night, oh. you know, which was interesting in the sense, I didn't really love the movie, but it was interesting in the sense that um, they were able to film these scenes with the tiger. I yeah, have no idea how it was how done. They did it. Yeah, it's like a magic trick. But, um, yeah, I cannot imagine uh, having... I mean, I guess over time, if you're sitting, just to continue in the Siegfried and Roy, you know, storyline, these guys for years and years and years did this show and never had a problem.
2: What happened?
1: Something happened. It was just that one thing. But those animals are so powerful, and you don't have much margin for error. Right. You know, Um, it's fascinating. I don't know if there's any way to really kind of define it, um, you know, in a satisfying way. But I'm sure there are some common threads. You know,
2: since we're talking about books, sort of. I just read a fantastic (laughs) book with an animal in it called Death and the Penguin by Andrei Korkov. Nobody's heard of this book. Um, It's translated from the Russian. And this guy who writes obituaries, the zoo is closing, going out of business. And so they're giving away animals and he takes a penguin.
1: I love it already. I
2: know. (laughs) And he lives with this penguin who sort of stands in the corner and stares and eats old fish and you know. See,
1: t- I could have a penguin.
2: Yeah, <laughs> doesn't seem. <laughs> if, very I lived, if I live if I
1: live somewhere cold, I mean, in and had a yard for right? I think it's you would. So weird. Yeah. it's
2: just a wonderful story.
1: That's great. Yeah, and and uh, you you mentioned that it was translated from the Russian, and mm-hmm. this brings up a, a writerly question or a readerly question: Why do they always call it the? like the russian or translated oh, yeah. from the french
2: It wasn't translated from the english <laughs>
1: <laughs> It just it just strikes me I've always noticed that I think that everybody true. so but that's what they always say and is it just like the russian language translated I
2: guess that must be it. Okay. But you could say translated from
1: russian. Right. But it's but the now,
2: russian. Translated from the <laughs> russian. And actually maybe it's ukrainian or something I don't
1: really know. Who knows? Know, Who knows? But say the name of that book again.
2: Death and the Penguin.
1: Death and the Penguin. All right. Well, you, that person's happy. They just got a yeah, plug. They got a bump.
2: The, the bump, the Brad Misty bump. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> Three books just sold on Amazon.com. <laughs> um, so let's talk about you and where you're from. Okay. So start at the beginning. Where are you from? I'm where, from
2: Washington, D.C. Oh, actually, the Maryland suburbs, right outside the city. Like Silver Bethesda. Spring. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, right there. So um, parents worked in government?
2: No, my dad was a... He's dead, so I can say this. He was a very bad lawyer, okay <laughs> <laughs> he just he I think all his clients lost, and <laughs> they paid us in um services often like, we'll fix your bicycle, <laughs> we'll fix your car, we'll put a new roof on the house and stuff right. And my mom was a school teacher, okay. and they didn't stay married very long.
1: They did not okay, mm-hmm. so what was it like growing up in the the shadow of washington d c
2: Well, we were actually. Um, A very political family, and we went to all the marches. I was very little, but I was there when Martin Luther King gave his speech.
1: The I Have a Dream. The
2: I Have a Dream. I mean, I don't remember a thing about it. I was tiny, but the whole family went. Um, So we were, and we kept, we had people come and stay with us that were there to go to marches and stuff. So it was this kind of activist in that way, sort of. Um, family, but it made us very ostracized in the neighborhood, you know it was the just because just 60s. Because,
1: well you know? did, did your did your folks have politics that fell outside of the norm in your particular neighborhood yeah,
2: they did so okay they were those eventually they were hippies, but at that point they were just radicals or whatever
1: mm. right it was they didn't have a name for them yet, yes, <laughs> so they were sort of ahead of their time
2: they they were I guess it's interesting and um When I moved to L.A., which is now 23 years ago, I missed, at first, the politics. I'd lived on the East Coast all along, and I thought, well, wait, where are the politics here? But they do exist. They really do. And you can get involved, but it's not the same. I I went to my first march here in Oh, there were a few people over there. There were a few people over there. <laughs> Everyone's
1: on their cell phones <laughs> right. texting. And then they're going for
2: coffee. You know, right. It's a different thing. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's a weird... I mean, like especially now in the wake of all this tragedy and everything, like thinking uh, of activism. I mean, it's been a really intense few days. We're been recording really this. Really intense. Uh, this show's probably not going to air for you know a little while after uh, the holidays, but uh, we're recording this just a few days after Newtown. Yeah. And so it's just been like... A really, t- especially for someone like me who's a news junkie, right? It's been really just an awful, awful. I have to turn off the spigot. I can't take it. Right. I, it's literally like making me sick. You know? Yeah. Like,
2: I actually put on Christmas music just because I, I had to, and then that made me so sad. Yeah. But I just turned off everything. <laughs> right. I, just, I listen to my dogs bark.
1: I need to I go think. to like very remote island, Yeah, you know, that would be nice. That's crazy. It's just been, yeah. And so it makes me think of politics and activism and like change and what the power of one person and what can you do? And you know, I'm not a person who is cynical to the point where I don't think it matters or that I think you're supposed to just turn your mind off to all of it or that it's all just fucked and everyone's right. crooked. And I don't think that's my attitude, uh, which is sort of no. surprising. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of expected that for myself, but uh, you know, I, I I understand the corruption, or at least I'm sensitive to it, and I understand I don't know what an icky world it can be, right? But I think to completely disengage, especially now that I have a kid, doesn't feel like an option to me. And at the same time, it's like okay, so if you're not going to disengage, how are you going to engage? Right. And that's not an easy answer. You know, so, right. it, you know, these sorts of situations always bring it back into the fore. And this one in particular, I think, is just, like, made me, like, we've got what to do we something. we got to do
2: something. I called the NRA. Somebody on Facebook said, call the NRA and gave their number. So I called and left a message. like.
1: I just, I've been having so fantasies what? of, like, just, like, a big, huge, huge helicopter with, like, a giant net filled with all the guns flying over a volcano and just dropping them in. Oh. <sighs>
2: So great.
1: Yeah, you know, I just want them to be melted like I don't understand the f- the, the allure I don't well, understand
2: and a friend wrote to me and said what if instead of bullets people bought poetry and what if this guy this poor young man because I do feel bad for him as well had broken into this school and embarded, bombarded this classroom with poems <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh. I mean it's like there's a subversive side to that, you know, but it's not,
1: I don't know. It's complex.
2: It's complex. And
1: the answer, you know, it's just, uh, there's not one answer, but something needs to be done. And I don't think we're going to, we're obviously not going to solve it Mm-mm. in the next, you know, 40 minutes or whatever, but it's just. But maybe
2: in the next four years. Maybe,
1: maybe. And or at so. Least-
2: Get there. Well, go start going there.
1: And that's the thing, though, is that like you know when you take kind of a long, like a, a higher altitude view or a longer view and you see how changes happen, it can be encouraging. Right. Things have there has been progress. Yes. It's not like we've been frozen for all of the history of the no. species. I mean, certain cycles have repeated themselves, but I think that like you know change can happen. It just often doesn't happen as quickly as or we no. might like. Right. So anyway. Um, so growing up, your parents are hippies, your father is an
2: bad lawyer. A,
1: a bad lawyer. Uh, your mother's a school teacher and you have any siblings?
2: I have an older sister and brother that well my brother was much older than I am and um more of a hippie family. He avoided the Vietnam War and went to Canada.
1: Oh wow. So So we're talking like real hippies. We're talking real
2: hippies. <laughs> so he didn't um he wasn't around. I barely know him. Wow, but he's a lot older than I am. But so how many a years? Canadian woman. He's sixteen years older than I am. So I was, you know, four, and he left forever. And he'd been in college before that. So um, where did he go sc- in Canada? School before that. Um, Toronto. He went to Toronto, and he taught at the University of Toronto. He got his PhD in physics. Go figure. And he taught there, and he married a Canadian woman, and you know, became a Canadian.
1: He made a life.
2: Made a life. Um, So I didn't grow up with him, but I have a sister, an older sister that I did grow up with.
1: And um, when you were young, were you were you already writing?
2: Always, always. But but I, it's it was you know something I thought I could not really do. I never thought I was very good at it, or that there was not a lot of reward for it, like at my school, my public schools, or any place. So I sort of. It, aside. it was just something I did at night before I went to sleep or when I had time on my own. Um, I didn't really think about it as a career. <laughs> I still can't really think <laughs> about it as a career. Right.
1: Not, Not many people <laughs> can. You're
2: right. But um, I didn't think it was something I could do. And I tried a lot of other things. And um, it didn't. it just kept coming back to it. And then I thought, I know. I'll write movies, because people who write movies, first of all, it's a craft, so I can learn that, and second of all, those people make money, they have a life, you know, they support themselves. Um, So I came out here, and I went to the AFI.
1: Okay, so that's what brought you to Los Angeles. That's what
2: brought me to Los Angeles, Okay, American Film Institute. So what was that like? It's very rarefied, or it was then, it's probably different now. Um, We were very much in an ivory tower. You know, talking about the great films of all time and <laughs> right. how you really write movies. And when I graduated from there, I started calling people and saying, Hi, I'm from the AFI. You know, I just graduated from the AFI. Silence. Silence. You know, they don't care. Yeah. But I had a stack of screenplays. I had maybe seven that I really felt pretty good about. I had written, you know, I'd gone back to school. I was paying for it myself. I worked hard. Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't, I had an agent, I couldn't even get him on the phone to fire him. I, he wouldn't take my call, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like I wasn't getting a meeting, nobody's reading anything. And, um, my husband, who's a documentary, was a documentary filmmaker, works in television now, um, in reality television, no, nonfiction television. He doesn't do like Survivor and stuff, but other kinds of things, um he and I were going to make a movie. And to make this movie and use his strengths, we put a writer in it, because that's what I always wanted to write about, and we interviewed three famous authors, Robert Stone, Tom Robbins, and John Irving. And we interviewed them on film, and we were going to make a trailer and try and raise money for the movie. Well, the movie never got made, but listening to these three writers, very different, very, very different, but listening to them talk about their work and how happy they were and how much they loved it, I thought, oh, I just wanna love writing again. I don't wanna think about marketability or casting or gee, there's been two movies like this so I should make a buddy film because that's what's popular. I didn't wanna think about that. I just wanted to write for me again. Um, I had two little kids at that point, and so they'd go to a birthday party, and I'd write. I mean, it was really a hobby, sort of, or something I did on the side. I was still trying to sell all those screenplays and rewrite them and stuff as a job. As much as a stay-at-home mom has that job. And so I just wrote this novel, just out of the sheer joy of it. And it's very internal. It's all the things a screenplay can't be. Um, and I gave it to my older sister to read when it was done. It took me three years, four years. She was the only person I gave it to. And she said, boy, I don't know anything about this. She's, not, she's a big reader, but she's not a writer. She said, why don't I give it to a friend? And I said, no, no, please don't give it to anybody else. I just wrote it for me. Three months later, July 17th, the phone rang. I picked it up, and it was this woman from the University Press in Mississippi saying, Diana? I want to buy your book. Shocking. Shocking. My, that was my sister's friend. And she had sent it to her just for response. And they took it. Um, I didn't have an agent.
1: What was your reaction?
2: Uh, well, first I was floored. You know, <laughs> uh, it's like, what book? You know, I was like, oh, that book? And then I was I was thrilled and excited. And, of course, it was, you know, pennies, basically, because the university press. But I hadn't even thought about that. It was just like, oh, my God, you know, getting my mind around. That was so interesting. And Joanne Pritchard was her name. And she was incredible. She it was like a little MFA program. She sat there and went over that book page by page with me. See how you do this here? Well, if you do this, you know unbelievable, the best editor in the world. And um, the book came out a year later, and it just coincidentally, it was a New York Times University Press issue. And they reviewed my book, and they reviewed it very favorably. And (laughs) this guy called me, that was a Sunday, on Monday, this guy called me and said, I'd like to talk to you about optioning this book for for a feature film. Now, This is a book about a woman who dresses in a blue bag for 90% of this film. She's inside this blue bag talking to a man in a hotel room about beauty and what beauty is. It is not cinematic. It is not cinematic. (laughs) But I said, okay. And then they hired me to write the screenplay. So the first money I ever made from screenwriting, the first deal I ever got, was because of that book. It's like, wow, it's shocking, you know?
1: But you know, when somebody finds their, um, is it his vocation or avocation? Yeah, What's the right no, word? I,
2: avocation. Avo- I think, I think yeah. you,
1: when you find your path right, and you do your thing and you do it and there's joy in it, um, it doesn't always, I mean, uh, it doesn't always work out that the green lights happen and that the doors open, but oftentimes that's the case. I've I talked to enough true. people who've on this show that have had that experience where they, when they finally got down to, you know finding their voice or whatever you want to call it telling the story that they really that wanted, they wanted to, tell, to tell clearing away all the bullshit doing it for the love of the game as opposed to the the pursuit of money or right. fame or publication or they just really had something they needed to say. Exactly. Then all of a sudden, the forces aligned in the universe sort of met them halfway. I like to think that's the way that it works.
2: It should be that way. It
1: should be, but it, it doesn't. Be. It isn't always. But it no, was for you.
2: It was for me. It Thank was goodness for your
1: sister, right? Thank
2: goodness for my sister, <laughs> my crazy sister. Yes.
1: But you know, it, I mean, that like think about what would happen, or what would have happened, or what would have not happened had she not
2: gone ahead and gone given it to ahead. her friend. Who knows? Yeah.
1: Right, I mean because like we told
2: her not to and she went ahead and did it she's always known what's best for
1: me. I was gonna say good <laughs> job sis for not listening um, so what happened to you so then you started writing this screenplay yeah and, how, and
2: that was we had a very good time I learned a lot about writing screenplays I had great meetings with Anne Haitian and Jennifer Jason Lee and Anne Haitian French kissed me. Did she? She did. Okay, and I let's thought, talk about. I this. got this deal. <laughs> I got this deal. She was with Ellen DeGeneres then, at the time. At okay. the time, and oh we went God. to her house in Larchmont, Hancock Park, that area. Yeah. And met with her with Anne, and then Ellen came in, and it was me and these two male producers, and I really felt like they were sort of testing us: Is this going to be okay? Is this our relationship going to be okay? And. We talked a lot about it, and no surprise, Anne really didn't want to spend 90% of the movie inside a blue
0: bag. I
1: was going to (laughs) say.
2: She kept saying, can't I be behind a door? Can't I be, you know, she was happy to be naked behind the door for no particular reason, but (laughs) she was happy to, but, you know, she didn't want to be unseen. And that was the problem we had getting the movie made from the get-go, obviously. Yes. But we had a really great meeting. They were terrific. They were both in their pajamas. But that was okay. We were at their house, you know. (laughs) Um, And then when we left, I gave her a book. Wait
1: wait a minute. What kind of pajamas were you talking? Because I'm seeing Alan in, like, the man pajamas. Both of them. Both of them were. Yeah, like, I
2: love Lucy pajamas, you know. Okay,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Like pajama pajamas.
2: Pajama pajamas. pajamas. Striped, I think. Not like 90s or
1: anything like that. Okay. pajamas. Yeah.
2: Men's pajamas, men's style. Yeah. Um... So then we left and we were all sort of in a line and Chip left, the first producer. Todd left, the second producer. And then there was me and I handed her this book, a copy of my book. I said, I signed it for you. She put her arms around me and, you know, sort of went in for a kiss. I thought, okay, a little kiss. It was like, a kiss. (laughs) 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 And I left there kind of going... Wow.
1: Well, how did you react in the moment? At I the guess moment? You, in the moment you're just like, okay, I go for it. Yeah,
2: you know, <laughs> it's like, what else am I going to kiss a movie star?
1: <laughs> it finally happens for you, and it's, <laughs> and it's Anne, Anne Hayes with Ellen DeGeneres watching,
2: standing right there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, okay, so do you think that was preconceived? That must have been preconceived. I'm going to I'm going to French kiss test. this off. It was a test. Or
2: the test. I hope God. I passed. Although we didn't get the details. I want to be so. tested. <laughs>
1: How do you get this test?
2: How do you get this test? And who from? That's the question.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. I've never heard it. I've never uh, quite heard that story told before. So
2: that was my screenwriting You know, that was why screenwriting was so fabulous. Yeah. Um. But the movie never got made. And it is that blue bag. And I never got kissed again by that, anybody.
1: Well, <laughs> you never know. You, you never know. know.
2: <laughs> they could drag it out. <laughs>
1: this, is, this is a craze, sweeping Hollywood. Um. So when it comes to, and let's talk a little bit about Hollywood because so many of my listeners and so many writers, um, you know, especially these days where I think like the money to be made in books is so difficult to get your hands on that. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, I'll have, I'll write a television pilot, I'll write the next mad men or I'll write the next, whatever it is, but it's a really difficult business and it's very, very competitive and it doesn't make a ton of sense in terms of how things happen. You know, like it just sort of, you know, I, I've tried to figure it out. I guess I'm, tr- I'm asking you for answers, but it's like, is it just luck? Is it a little bit of both? Like, how do you view it after your experiences?
2: Well, I think I think a lot of it is luck um, and being in the right place at the right time. You have to have good material, but God knows we see a lot of television that and movies that You go, how did that get made? Yeah. And some of it is just knowing this person who knows this person, who knows that person.
1: And then uh, being there at the exact exact right time. Exact right
2: time. And, oh, you know, the executive at some studio was just thinking about turtles. And (laughs) here comes this script with (laughs) a talking turtle in it. You know, who knew?
1: I wonder how many people in this town have the ability to make a movie happen.
2: Oh, I bet there are very few that I would actually
1: can actually push a button and say, it do is this. done, the money is flowing, it's going to happen.
2: Because even um, I saw Silver Lining Playbook.
1: Yeah, I like that movie. I
2: liked it too, and I heard David O. Russell talk afterwards. It took him five years to get that movie going. Yeah. You know, because it was a hard sell. And you've got Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. 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 Yeah. And it's still hard to make.
1: Well, you know, I, I I heard the same thing said about Alexander Payne and how you know there was a big lapse of time in between Sideways and The Descendants, which
2: I'm, is so weird. So
1: weird. He can't get movies financed,
2: right? Why would that Him? be?
1: If he yeah. if he can't, then we're all screwed. Then we're all screwed. You know what I'm saying? Like these guys have pro- they have proven themselves. Over He's and He's a gifted writer. Right, like both of them. You know, right. David O. Russell and those guys kind of fall into the same category. They write, they direct. Their movies right. have like a distinct personality. Personality that, uh, that
2: people like.
1: That's frustrating it's a, to me.
2: It's a terrible business, I think, and I don't know anybody that's in it as a, particularly as a screenwriter who's actually happy. Um, I know a lot of happy novelists. Yeah. You know, miserable but happy. Yeah. But I don't know any happy screenwriters. They're all just miserable.
0: Well,
1: you're just a, you know you're sort of a cog in the machine. Yeah. And you're, you know, it's a. I think a lot of here's what I here's what I would surmise as far as that is concerned is that. And that sounded really formal. Here's what I will surmise, but <laughs> please surmise. Yes, uh, what I mean to say is uh, the reason why I think that might be the case is that people who are writerly in nature tend to be lone wolves. Mm-hmm. Like that's the inclination. That so I just true. want to go hide out in my, um, you know, cave, my little, you know, study, carol, the happiest. library. That's and where I'm happiest. Dark
2: room with the computer. With the computer,
1: yes. or the piece of paper, whatever it is. And when you get into the Uh, world of entertainment, whether it's television or film, it's an extremely collaborative process. And the writer is an extremely expendable component. Right. And so, you know, when you write a screenplay, and I think that this is a part of it that you have to be a realist about if you're going to do that sort of thing is, you know, it's just the blueprint, Right. you know, and then the other people go on to build the house and you have to be aware of the fact that what you're, you're just drawing the blueprint Right. and it can be scrapped and it can be noodled with and I think that can be extremely painful for somebody who's, you know, poured all of themselves for a year or whatever it is into some screenplay that they feel really strongly about and then to see it get mangled or to see it get altered. Difficult.
2: Really difficult. And I always say to people who say they want to be screenwriters, I say, have something else that's yours, you know, knit or take (laughs) photographs
1: or collect iguanas,
2: (laughs) collect iguanas, something. Yeah. You know, I ended up after Skin Deep came out, and after it was option, and all of that, a screenplay that I wrote at the AFI was bought and produced. Shocking, but it allowed it me to not have to work while I wrote the next novel for, and that's why writers want to sell things to Hollywood because right. there's actual it's money there. um, But I oh, there was so much. You know, we love this script. We love it, love it. It's so fabulous. And then I never heard from them again, basically. Um, I called at one point and said, oh, they're shooting right downtown, which is close to where I live. So I went downtown. They tried to shoo me off the set. They thought I was just a fan. you know. I had to introduce myself to the director. He had no idea who I was. (laughs) I watched them film a scene. That was kind of great. And then I went um, home and never heard from them again. And then sometime later, a DVD came in the mail, I was so excited sat my family down. we go to watch this DVD. First of all, there are two other names on it as writers. and second of all, not one word in it is still mine. Wow not one. The story is kind of sort of what I had come up with right, but not one line of dialogue. and I thought, oh thank God, I'm writing a novel. thank God i
1: that's what that's yeah. what I say. I mean I say to people it's like you know. There might not be a huge reward in terms of money or fame or anything or readers, but there is the, the simple reward that like what you write, should it get published, makes it to the page, mostly, yeah. intact, mostly intact and it's yours and it's as permanent as anything written can be, I guess, right. you know, and there's satisfaction in that and you have total control. And, you know, I think, I don't think it's easy to write a good anything. No. You know, so somebody who writes a good screenplay has done something. Done something. But don't do you think that writing novels is a greater challenge because you have complete, you have to have complete right. control of the whole fix thing. It
2: in post. Right. At all.
1: There's no. There's nothing, and you, you don't have the uh, the benefit of having music. You don't have actors. You don't have the right. director. You don't have all of those. Collaborators. Why I describe
2: a character when it's just going to be Gwyneth Paltrow? Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> we um, know
1: what she looks like. We know what she looks like, <laughs> and
2: we know sort of a quality of her and stuff. Yeah. Um, I think, for me, I guess the hardest thing about novels is they're so open-ended. They can kind of go anywhere. And um, this book, I originally thought I would write it only from Winnie, the woman who gets kidnapped, only from her point of view. Um, But it was so claustrophobic to have her in a room being kidnapped for, you know, 250 pages, and I really wanted to go into the heads of some other characters, so I did, but I could have gone into something, you know, it could have gone in a totally different direction. It could have, and a screenplay, it's 110 pages, and things have to happen by page 10, and there's sort of a formula to it. It is it is a craft, and within that, boy, all kudos to great scripts because it's hard it's hard and great ones are great you know it's amazing um but you're still you're not going to go on for 400 pages
1: i just feel like yeah i guess like i've done i've tried both and uh i feel like with a novel there's something house of it's like a house of cards Mm -hmm. whereas like with a screenplay it feels more like i guess they both feel like puzzles i don't know if i have the right like analogy just like at the ready but They're different. Yeah. And and, and just the the novel feels a lot more unwieldy to me and a lot more difficult and dangerous. Yes. I feel like you can keep trying with 110 pages and mostly white space. It just feels more manageable.
0: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And
2: you don't have to go into anybody's head. Right. Because in our heads is the scariest place of all. You know, it's scary when someone gets kidnapped, but what that kidnapper is thinking is a whole lot scarier than two people sitting in a room, one of them kidnapped. That's right. So... I find that the scariest part of novels. is like, I know these people and I have to be in their heads with them and, you know.
1: So, okay, so how do you get inside the mind of a, of a deranged person? How do you do that so well?
2: <laughs> well, that's actually the, the easiest part. The deranged is this is sort of awful of me to say, but Oren, the kidnapper, is kind of a lot like me just push to a real extreme. It's like my little fears and my little anxieties. I mean, you know, the OCD traits I have, I just push them till the ends of the earth for him. Um, What's harder is to get into characters who are sort of namby-pamby or... I mean, you don't want any characters that are blasé, but a character that's kind of bored with life. Or Winnie, actually, was hard at first because she's a divorced mom of a teenage girl and works in a real estate office. And, you know, I would be her friend, but I wouldn't find her the most thrilling person. So to get really down into what makes a person tick, who they really are, I think that's the writer's job. And it's hard.
1: Okay. So how do you do that? Like, do you, when you're working on character, do you create character sketches or do like a lot of character work before you begin? Or is it all intuition as you're muddling your way through the narrative?
2: Well, I wish I could say I did all the character work beforehand. I tell my students, do character descriptions, find <laughs> right. out about their eighth birthday, Write their backstory, yeah, yeah. Yeah. who are their grandparents. You should know all of this. Yeah. But I have a tendency to just leap in there and start writing. And with this book, I ended up throwing away a 450-page draft. I mean, I totally threw it away because I hadn't gotten there. I'd been writing for two years, two and a half years, three maybe. And it just, I couldn't get it. And Winnie was the big problem.
1: Okay, so let's stop here. This is an interesting <laughs> yeah. juncture. Like, first of all, how did you make the decision to scrap it? And what was that moment like?
2: That was a bad moment. Yes. A really bad moment. <laughs> okay. Um, I had an agent who had been with me for my other books, and she got sucked up from a little agency to William Morris. Very exciting. But she dumped a lot of her old clients. And I sent her the book, and I said, no, no, this is my breakthrough novel. <laughs> you should read this. And months went by. She never really read it. She sort of read the first, like, three chapters. She didn't like it. I mean, obviously it wasn't working, but she didn't like it. And we had this horrible phone conversation, and she, we agreed to part ways.
1: What was the phone conversation? Just, like, oh, she stilted found, and weird? Yeah, and, and
2: weird. And I'd been with her a long time and knew her kids. And, you know, it was, it was awful. It was a dark, low moment. And I'm saying, but you don't understand, you know, I can, I'm rewriting. I just want your notes. And she kept saying, well, this is not the book you need to write. This is, oh, it was awful.
1: What's the, okay. So, but what's this? I don't mean to make you have to relive it, but it's, it's an interesting, because I think a lot of writers will relate. Yes. It's a difficult market and it's difficult to find representation that will stick with you and that, you know, and then there's also like, there's, there's also a strong part of me that can empathize with the agent.
2: Yeah, of course.
1: Because they're out there trying to sell stuff, and it's so tough for them. And like with advances being what they are, like they're not making any money.
2: They're not making any money. You know? and with you know being at William Morris, there was a certain amount of pressure.
1: That's right. For right. Her,
2: you know that there hadn't been at the tiny agency. She sold my book for, I don't know, a thousand dollars or whatever. It's fine. You yeah. Know, nobody was going to say thousand dollars. Right. But William Morris, she needed to make big sales.
1: So what's the subtext? And like what? What what was she advocating? Like, if this is not the book that you need to be writing, what was the book?
2: Well, she wanted me to write Bridget Jones' Mother's Diary. I mean, that was what she called it. It was sort of like, you know, I'm a little older. She wanted to write wanted me to write about an older woman dating. You know, out on the dating scene, and I've been married for a long time, and not that I couldn't write about. An older woman dating, but I wouldn't write. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't write <laughs> right, about an older right. woman. That's not me.
1: You can't, yeah.
2: You can't write what you're... I mean, I think people do that. They try to write... That like sounds Michael like misery. Crane. Yeah, or something, to sell it. Right. But then it's back to those, those screenplays, you know, where I kept thinking...
1: That's the same thing. Right. You know, we want, want a, we want We want cowboys and aliens exactly. or whatever it is. Whatever's
2: you know. popular at the time. Vampires. I kept trying to put out there so in that conversation we realized that I was never going to be what she wanted me to be she said to me in the conversation you're so damn quirky
1: I get quirky all, all the fucking time. I know. <laughs> Everyone who's ever represented me or read my stuff is always like, it's really quirky. quirky. That's not, a, I, that's, I've learned that that's not a good word. It's
2: not a good word, especially from an agent. <laughs> yeah. When they, they, I don't know how to sell quirky. That's what it means. That's yeah. what it
1: means. It's just, I have no fucking idea what to do with this. This is interesting. Right. But I don't know what to do with this. I don't
2: know what to do with it. Ugh. So we parted ways and I was depressed. Yeah. I mean hung up the phone, cried, you know, fetal,
1: fetal position,
2: <laughs> ate too many cookies, guzzling
1: vodka, <laughs> and eating cupcakes. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Typical writer stuff. And, <laughs> um, put the book away. Just said, you know, maybe, maybe this, it was so tainted at that point, you know, it's like I'd worked so hard. She, she never even really finished reading it. She just read some of it, but I, I put it away and months went by, um, probably around three months. And I, Picked it up again. And I Glutton thought, for punishment. Glutton for punishment. <laughs> and I read it from beginning to end. And I thought, what do I like about this book? What is it in this book that excites me that's interesting? And the way that 450-page manuscript ended, the very last, like, 30 pages from the end, she gets kidnapped. And it wasn't until I got to that point sorry, that... Um, I thought to myself, oh, now I'm sort of engaged. But she got kidnapped and rescued. Bam, like that. And there was this iguana. And I thought, I like this part. I like the getting kidnapped and this man with this iguana. And what the hell is going on in that house? And so I threw away 420 pages
1: and that's like, you you learned that, that you were basically just like, I, I used I was, to, when I was teaching, I would call it throat clearing. Yeah. It's like exactly. the 450 page.
2: <clears throat> yeah. And it would have been so much better if I had just done some character discussions and, you know, spent some more time walking around and thinking. You
1: say that, but you know what? Everybody has to do it their own way. I know. You have to go through, you know, I hate and to I say it. And I don't know it.
2: if I would have gotten there without right. all of this. You
1: have to muddle through in whatever yeah. way you do. And, um... Three months, huh? Yeah. And the
2: 450 pages were all about clowns. When he was a birthday party clown, I, which really makes your agent's eyes roll up in their head. It's
1: all becoming clear now.
2: <laughs> and I had gone to Las Vegas to the clown convention.
1: Oh my God. This is great. The world
2: clown convention. There are yeah. clowns from all over the world. Creepy, right? Circus Circus. So look
1: at you at reptile conventions and clown conventions. <laughs>
2: Love my research. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and they were, I took clown classes. I went on a ride along
0: with a clown. Oh, my God! You can do not a- let
2: you do it anymore, but you can do it with a clown. <laughs> she took me to a birthday party. Um, wow. And I thought, this is fashion- This is such a sub-world. I love this. And all those clowns are gone now. That's it. There's no
1: never clown. to be resuscitated.
2: Well, maybe. You never know.
1: <laughs> I love <laughs> Just them. Just squeeze the big red nose. It pumps air into their lungs. It's true. Um, well, that's interesting. And and it's also, I think, like a admirable you know example of perseverance yeah. and and humility yeah. because i think like a lot of writers might receive that kind of feedback from an agent and be like f you f this what right. do you know i know better i'm going to find another agent you know but right. looking back on it what's the lesson like is it like where do you see your wisdom when you have the benefit of hindsight was it was taking that 3 month period to sort of Breathe a, a really good idea, that hard. was a
2: really good idea. But probably what I should have done was taken the three months or two months or a month before I sent it to my agent. I knew in my heart of hearts that it wasn't really working, it wasn't the book I wanted it to be yet. But I was, you know, you type the end and you're so excited, right?
1: I'm going through this right now, by yeah. the way.
2: Yeah, and she. It had been a while, and she was waiting. I felt like she was really waiting for my book, not that she was. And I couldn't wait to send it to her. Right. But I probably shouldn't have. I probably should have allowed myself those couple of months to just sit on it, because I didn't feel like this book is working
1: completely. Well, it, it's a, like, this it's is so a, hard. This is a part of the process that doesn't get talked about as much as other parts. And it's like trying to maintain the emotional control when you get to that juncture. And, and there's a huge, there's a, I always talk about this. It's like this, this weird thing where whenever you're looking back on a book, you always romanticize the actual doing of the thing, which I think is accurate. But when you're in the writing of it, when you're in the doing of the thing, as, as much as like pleasure as you're supposedly getting from it, all you want is for it to be over. Be over. Be over.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: and I'm telling you, when you start to see the finish line and you get to the end of a book and it's taken you years to write, I mean, as soon as you, it's a thrill and such a relief.
2: Such a relief.
1: And what you want to do is be like, here, it's done. Right. Take it. Exactly. Please like do something with it or whatever, you know, go sell it, you know, right. and, and let's get this. Tell thing. me you love it. Tell me you love it. And, um, trying to rein that impulse in, which mm-hmm. I'm sure is born of some insecurity. I think some of it's just completely natural and yeah. positive, but there's also a part of it where it's like emotionally needy or whatever right. it is. And trying to manage those emotions is a difficult thing. Right. And I think most writers, it's trial and error. Most writer, for a lot of writers, it's mostly error. <laughs> yeah, <it's> mostly error. <laughs> it's really difficult. Difficult for me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe the the really good ones are a- expert at knowing how to play that or something. But or something. it's difficult.
2: It's really hard, even with like a short story. You know, you finish a short story and maybe you've written it in one big burst. And so you sort of think it's great because it was all this kind of feeling all together. Mm. And I'm going to start sending it out to these lit journals right away. But I really believe if you can just leave it for a couple of days and go back, maybe you'll just see the typo that you
1: and it Didn't was in your see. name. <laughs> right. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew?
0: Um,
2: I don't know. It, that's the hardest thing. And I think that's the lesson that I learned. I learned a couple lessons. One was stick with it. Mm. You know, don't give up. I started another book in the middle of this, and then I had to put that aside to go back to... It was like it was noodling me, you know, niggling, whatever that word is. It,
1: it wouldn't was, leave you alone. Yeah,
2: it wouldn't leave me alone. Um you can do this you can do this, you know and then it's like an ego thing <laughs> you can make this one
1: dreams of clowns right. <laughs> urging you on
2: urging me on
1: <laughs> that's an awesome i mean if we'll call it a false start that's fair yes, right? a very- but that's an awesome false start clown <laughs> <was> conventions pretty- <laughs> you know if you're going to go go big right? i still
2: get emails from the clowns you do i do
1: and okay so just by way of comparison uh you know herpetologists <laughs> And people who are really into reptiles versus the clowns. The clowns. What is those two subcultures? There's
2: something similar. Is there? Well, anybody who's obsessed. Yeah. There's an obsession gene that some people have. And that to me is so fascinating. I'm too big a cynic, I think, to get that kind of obsessed. I don't know. No, I mean I've been ha- I'm pretty obsessed about my writing, but not in that same
1: I but you know what? I've been having this debate with myself lately too and it comes to and, it, and it's in that same vein with regard to obsession and monomania mm-hmm. and just that kind of focus and that kind of love of something. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I'm swimming in writers all the time online right. at least, you know, and uh, I'm very aware. You know, it's really not that big of a community when you get down right. to it because you see the same faces and but I know a lot of writers and I read a lot of stuff about writing and there are writers out there who I mean they really love it. Right. Really love it. They love the books, they love the writing. And I love it, but like I have been saying to myself lately, like, I don't know if I'm capable of loving it or anything <laughs> right. that much. Right. And it worries me. It's like almost like I wonder if it's a prerequisite. Like you have to have that sort of obsession in you and I don't know if I do, you know, well, I,
2: you know, each book is an obsession. Yeah. So sometimes I think that I, I do love the writing and I love words and I keep a list of words and things, but sometimes I think I love the writing because it involves me in another world because I am that person who would rather be home in my little dark garage, which is where my computer is Right. by myself. You know, I'd rather be there. But I'm interested in other places, and through my writing, I can go there right. and be that person. Right. Um,
1: and when you get into a book and you're really into it, then it does become an obsession. Obsession. And you have to get back to it. And, and you
2: think about it all the time. That's a good when you're place to be. Dishes or something. Yeah. But yeah, there are writers who go to writer conventions and wear writer T-shirts and
0: They love it. They
2: love it. Yeah. And I'm not that right. Yeah.
1: I'm not that, so it's okay though. Yeah, it's okay. Because I've been worried about myself. No, like, it's, maybe I don't know it's if,
2: better. <laughs> maybe.
1: You hear <laughs> that? You hear that? You obsessive people out there? <laughs> um, well, you know, it's interesting. And when you look at your career and you try to project going forward, do you ever have um, a difficult time generating the kind of energy that you need? Or thinking of it, you know, because like book sales, and you can't measure yourself with those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Like, where do you find the motivation? And obviously, you've got your life set up so that you can write, which in and of itself is a feat. Is a feat and a luxury. You and know, a luxury. Like it's, a, it's a difficult I'm a lucky thing. Person, yeah. You know, I
2: teach two days a week, and I have a husband who makes a living, so
1: I'm lucky. You can do it, but everybody that aside, yes, everybody who does this, I think. Secretly thinks like, I could be the one. Yeah, I think you have to have that. You have to have that thought. I could be the one who wins the lottery, which is right. essentially how it is these days. You know, like,
2: National Book Award. Right. I, you know?
1: But you know what's crazy is that like, I wonder, I think if you win the Pulitzer or you win the National Book Award, it, you sell some books. Right. Serious books in the, in the uh, context of book sales. Right. But I wonder if like you're just a National Book Award nominee does that help? Does that Have help? Have that
2: little gold sticker. Yeah,
1: you know? I don't know. And it's like, it's almost like cruel. It's like, God, you get you get like one of four books nominated, but unless you win, right. you know, like then you don't get the press and like America loves a winner and, you know?
2: I get excited about the writing. I do, you know, about a new idea. Hmm. Like I've just finished the first draft, very rough first draft of a new book, and that's very exciting to me. I'm thinking about it a lot and everything I hear on the radio is sort of, oh, hmm, maybe I could put that in there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but when I start thinking about oh and then I have to sell it and then even worse I have to come out of my little dark room and market <laughs> I'm it I'm
1: sorry I asked you to come here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a
2: pretty little dark room. Yeah, it's pretty right. nice.
1: <laughs> we can turn the lights on if you want. <laughs> Make you um, feel like you're more in your natural more habitat. <laughs> <my> natural habitat.
2: <laughs> but um you know that part gets overwhelming to me. Yeah. And just because there's so much to it and all the things that they say about if this book doesn't sell a certain amount it will be that much harder to even get a publisher for your next
1: book oh god
2: and then then you just feel frantic
1: so what do you do you have to turn it off
2: i have to turn it off i do yeah i know i mean you know writers who make marketing their books a machine sort of they yeah. can really do it and you see them everywhere you know i hired lit breaker I did an ad. Yeah. I tried to do what I could do, but I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna go with a box of books in the trunk of my car yeah. around to every you know iguana person and say please <laughs> buy my book.
1: And like be searching Twitter to find like hashtag iguana people. Exactly. And, you know, and that's the thing too is that like, um, I don't know how much that stuff even does.
2: I don't know either. It's
1: impossible to quantify it for one thing. And then you know, I know I, I myself, I mean, I, when my book came out, I was on every social media. I was right. blogging. I was doing anything anyone told me to do Exactly. because you want to fight for your book. Right. But I look back on it and I'm like, I might've wasted a lot of time doing right. what I, when I should have been writing or, you know what I'm saying? And I, you
2: have no idea. Yeah. You know, it, Robert Olin Butler, who won the Pulitzer for, Good Scent from Strange Mountain. Yeah, I was going to say Mountain, but yeah. I couldn't think of His the whole title. a collection of Vietnamese stories. He went to a bookstore to read, which they don't even do anymore, really. They don't have a lot of readings these days. But he went to a bookstore to read, and it's hard to imagine, but only three people showed up. Jesus. And he said, well, you know, I'll read anyway. And he read sort of over the loudspeaker or whatever to whoever was in the store. And a guy walking by stopped to listen, bought the book. And that guy was on the committee, on the Pulitzer committee. So you don't know. Wow! Yeah. You know, you gotta try. You gotta put it out. Oh, so
1: there. this was he? Only three people showed up before he won the. Oh Pulitzer.
2: yeah, way before.
1: Okay. Okay. I was gonna say, yeah. like, God, I'm so depressed. <laughs> <I
2: know. laughs>
1: yeah, he's the Pulitzer Prize-winning author who, and only three people. But you know, that wouldn't surprise no, me. No,
2: I went to see Richard Ford at Allowed, and there were plenty of room in the house. God. And I thought, oh my God, he's Richard Ford. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's the that's the the landscape that we live in. Right. Um, so what is you said you're working on a novel? I am. You finished a first draft. I did. How do you do it? You do go through multiple drafts, or you like a
2: multiple dra- obviously. Yeah. I'm hoping I'm not going to throw this whole draft away. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think actually I'm writing a book that I like. You know, that's okay just the way it is. I feel pretty good about it actually, which is very strange feeling.
1: Okay. Me. So if, uh, if this, if this book, uh, Karen feeding could be boiled down to like two words, I would say first clowns and then reptiles, <laughs> right? This new book, one word,
2: um, survival.
1: Okay. Survival. Um, I thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thank ho- you. Yeah. It's been getting fun. me out of my, <laughs> right. my hovel. I will now let you return to your, <laughs> your dojo. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you guys, there you go. That is it. That is Diana Wagman. Go get her new novel. It's called The Care and Feeding of Exotic Pets. It is out there now from Ig Publishing. You can find Diana online at dianawagman.com. She's on the Facebook, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Diana Wagman. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to donate some money to help the victims of the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary, Uh, If you want to help that community a little bit, the United Way of Western Connecticut has set up a fund, so if you want to uh, throw down a few dollars, please visit www.newtown.uwwesternct.org. And you can also donate to Newtown Youth and Family Services. This particular organization is providing counseling for family members and students and anyone affected by uh, this awful tragedy, so... If you would like to help that uh, cause, just visit org. Okay? Uh, All right, folks. Good luck out there uh, in the shopping malls. Good luck out there as you uh, manage the impending holiday situation. Uh, If you were thinking of sending me a gift, not that you were, but in case it crosses your mind here and there, please direct all gifts to the people of Newtown. Send them cash. Send them baskets of food and sundry items. Send them your best good thoughts. And uh, remember to hug everyone you know, including complete strangers, uh, within reason. Like, you know, don't hug anybody who looks like they might grope you or something, unless you're into that. Uh, Please remember that F. Scott Fitzgerald died of a series of heart attacks and that his most recent royalty statement at the time of his death showed that seven copies of The Great Gatsby had sold during the preceding six months. That's it for now, folks. I'll be back again soon. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you spreading the word about the program. Uh, I will now bid you farewell. I'll be back again soon with another show. And uh, please remember, there's no break throughout the holidays. The podcasts will continue to roll out on their regular schedule because I'm committed to delivering high-quality content to my audience. Do you understand me? Uh, I'm committed to you, and this is high-quality content. The quality of this content is high.